What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to tonight's debate, China Picks Better Leaders Than the West. And this debate could hardly be more timely, given that next week political cycles will come to their climax, both in China and the U.S., In just 10 days, China starts the key meeting that kicks off its once-in-a-decade transition of power. And this comes at a time when the Communist Party is reeling from the scandalous fall of Bo Lai amid accusations of abuse of power, corruption, sex, and even involvement in covering up a murder. In another blow for the Chinese leadership, the New York Times printed a detailed story on Friday describing how family members of the current premier, Wen Jiabao, control $2.7 billion in assets. Lawyers for the family are contesting some parts of the report, but it is damaging both for the premier and the communist leadership. As for the party congress, so far the agenda is still unknown, as is the leadership lineup. This stands in stark contrast to the very public leadership battle in the United States, which in just a week holds its presidential election. But there, too, the political process has been under fire. The most recent debate between President Barack Obama and the Republican contender Mitt Romney was criticized by one commentator as wretched, with no redeeming qualities, substance-free boring, suffuse with empty platitudes. And he went on to say that was a perfect microcosm of U.S. political culture. So does the relative openness of the U.S. system really provide voters with more experienced, more able leaders? Or are there advantages to the Chinese system where administrators rise up through the ranks? Well, that's what our debaters are going to discuss tonight with the motion, China picks better leaders than the West. And we have here four superbly qualified debaters. For the motion, we will have Daniel Bell from Tsinghua University and the former Solicitor General, Daniel Fong. Against the motion, we will have Kenneth Lieberthal from the Brookings Institution and the Civic Party legislator, Ronnie Tong. Each speaker will have 10 minutes to set their case and then we'll open the floor uh, for questions. And about that time, you, the audience, will be asked to cast your final vote. Uh, You'll be given uh, voting slips like this, and your uh, ballot boxes will go round the room, and you'll tear the slips in two. Uh, You were asked your opinion on the motion on entry, and we will bring you those results after the initial statements. Um, Each speaker will have ten minutes. Uh, If you... At nine minutes, I will ding you like this. And at 10 minutes, I'll cut you off. (laughs) If anybody would like to tweet, there is a hashtag, which is IQ2Asia, so feel free to tweet. So I'm going to now call our first speaker to the podium, Daniel Bell. He's in an extremely unusual position, a Canadian who calls himself a Confucian philosopher and scholar. He's the first foreigner hired since the Cultural Revolution to teach political theory at Tsinghua in Beijing, which is one of the most prestigious universities in China. He's published six books on East Asian politics and philosophy. And interestingly, he said Confucius was pretty much a political failure in his lifetime, as was his most famous influencer, Mencius. Daniel is arguing for the motion, China picks better leaders than the West. So over to you. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's not use up too much of my valuable time. Thank you. Um, so the focus here really is, um, is whether political leaders who make decisions that affect our well-being, I mean, that's what we're looking at. And I, I'm going to begin with an uncontroversial assumption, which is that every rational person would prefer to be ruled by a leader who is competent and morally upright. Yeah, I mean, who wants to be ruled by somebody who's incompetent and morally bad? I think that's pretty uncontroversial. And the question is, which political system is most likely to produce rulers who are competent and morally upright? And the answer that I'm going to give, I'm going to use the word China model for short, but it's democracy at lower levels of government, meritocracy at upper central levels of government, and lots of room for diversity and experimentation in between. And I'm going to develop that claim. But let me begin with a confession, which is that I started teaching in East Asia over 20 years ago, and had I heard somebody about to make the argument, or had I heard somebody make the argument that I'm about to make, I would have been, I would have found this person deeply disturbing, because we in the West, when we're brought up as kids, we learn to love democracy, you know, almost the way that we love candies. We never question democracy in the form of one person, one vote as a political ideal, and anybody who does is viewed as somehow outside of the morally correct uh, view uh, uh, spectrum. But it's only later, you know, just like candy, we find out that it's bad for you in large doses. I think the same thing is true about democracy, and that's what I'm about to argue. Now, I don't want to argue about democracy at local levels. I mean, I think we can all agree that's a good thing, you know, because people know what's good for them in, 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 their, little, in their small communities, you know, whether to build a school or, or a hospital, um, in which leaders are more competent and corrupt. You know, you know them, and people have a pretty good sense. of so one person, one vote. That's really what I'm going to argue about at the local level is a good thing. We don't have to argue about that. In fact, China already more or less practices that, you know, 700 million Chinese vote in local level elections. And the system is flawed, but at least it should be improved on the base of democracy. We don't have to argue about that, okay? But I think democracy often malfunctions outside of small and intimate contexts. And let me just develop that claim a little bit. Because I think from a moral point of view, you know, when you vote, you should vote for the common good. Because your vote affects people in the whole community. It doesn't just affect your, whole your own interests, it affects other people. The problem is, as an empirical issue is that most people vote with their pocketbooks, as they say in, in the U.S. I'm from Canada, but anyway. But actually, so in other words, people are, tend to be quite selfish when they vote. But actually, the problem is even worse than that. Most people vote with a perception of what their pocketbooks require. Because there's an economist called Brian Kaplan who wrote a book called The Myth of the Rational Voter, published by Princeton University Press. He argues that people, most people misunderstand their own economic interests, and, and they often vote in irrational ways. There's only one group that's an exception, the rich. They tend to know what their economic interests are, and they have better understanding of how economic works. So therefore, the democracies tend to favor the rich people. So in the U.S., people say, it's, in fact, it's more one, uh, one dollar, one vote, rather than one person, one vote. So what Kaplan suggests is, let's have tests of voter competence. Before you vote, test for economic, basic economic knowledge. Now, that's a non-starter in the U.S. for this reason that I said earlier, that when you're a kid, you know, you, you learn to love democracy and you never question one person, one vote. It wasn't true 19th century. We can discuss that later. Democracies cannot improve. Once you have one person, one vote in place, you can't change the system. Nobody wants to give up the vote. No matter how incompetent people are or how immoral they are, you can't improve the system. So that's an argument, I think, a pretty powerful argument against democracy, which is that it can't change no matter how bad it is. There's an even deeper problem with democracy, which is that even when it works well, if people vote according to the interests of the community of voters, some non-voters are also affected by the policies of government, especially in large countries like the U.S. You know, when people vote, they also affect the interests of future generations and people living outside the U.S., but nobody represents their interests. And if there's a conflict of interest between future generations and the current generations, you can be sure that the interests of future generations will be sacrificed. And that's not just a theoretical problem. Think of global warming, okay? Um, Nobody in the U.S. now in the current presidential debates is talking about global warming. I mean, the big issue of our time is a non-issue in, in U.S. presidential elections. That's pretty uh, shocking to me. So what's the alternative then? I'm going to call it political meritocracy. And this is the view that a system should be designed to choose uh, superior leaders. That is, leaders who are uh, above average in terms of competence and, 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 and morality. And what this means in the case of China is that leaders are selected 
first, by means of many levels of examinations, two, by performance at lower levels of government, and three, by means of recommendation, interviews with subordinates and superiors. All those factors play a place in terms of recruitment and promotion of people within the party. You have to remember it's a, the Communist Party is a huge organization, 82 million people. Now, this political meritocracy arguably is the main uh, political uh, culture in Chinese history, and it's been revived over the past three decades in China. I teach at Tsinghua, which is the university that grooms future leaders. To get into Tsinghua, you have to be in the top 1% of the national examinations. So already you have very you know, strict meritocracy to get in. Many things are wrong with China, lots of corruption, but the, the uh, examinations to get into university is relatively non-corrupt, okay? Once you're in, many of the high-performing students want to join the Communist Party, which, isn't, which wasn't true 20 or 30 years ago. But now I can tell you by my own experience it's true. It's also empirically verifiable. And so today, 28% of the uh, students at Tsinghua are members of the party. If you want to really go into government then, what do you do? Well, then you have to pass... I'm going to translate it as the government uh, examinations because the term civil servant is misleading in Chinese context. I can explain that if you want later. <laughs> For those government examinations, they're hugely competitive. In the two zero zero twelve examinations this year, national level examinations, you had many posts where like 9,000 applicants were competing for one post. I mean, very ultra competitive. Once you get in, then you're put on the road to political power. You're not just a civil servant who's supposed to implement the decisions of political decision makers. You're put on the road to political power. How are you promoted? Good performance at lower levels of government, recommendations by your superiors and subordinates, and later, when you're in your 40s or 50s, more examinations. You have specialized position-specific examinations for very specific posts in economics and foreign policy and so on, both oral and written examinations. If you want to go into the standing committee, again, we know there's lots of corruption, but usually you have to have very good experience at lower levels of government. You have to be so usually a governor or, 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 or party secretary of a province the size of most uh, countries. Now, what are the advantages of Chinese-style meritocracy? Well, instead of wasting time campaigning for votes and raising money, uh, the, pol the political leaders seek, m spend much of their time improving their political performance and knowledge. The leaders go abroad to learn from the best practices abroad. I mean, we know in China, you know, many of the vice mayors, vice ministers, ministers, mayors, they go to uh, U.S., Singapore, Australia, Canada, and so on. Then they say, tell us what your best practices are. We want to learn. They, they can do that instead of wasting time campaigning for votes and raising money. Two, they can consider the interests of all stakeholders, not just a group of voters, but also future generations and people living outside the state, because they don't have to worry about you know, what the voters think about them, which is an advantage in this sense. Two, uh, the third point, the top leaders don't make beginner's mistakes because they all have lots of experience. I mean, in the U.S., even talented leaders like Obama, you know, when he was first made president, he had no experience in foreign policy and finance. All of a sudden, he had to take responsibility for all those decisions. It doesn't happen in China. Fourth, decision-making by committee means that no one person can make outlandish uh, and emotional decisions. You know, the, the bad emperor problem basically has been solved in China. In fact, it's worse in democracies where one leader like George Bush, George W. Bush, can decide to invade Iraq. I mean, there are many reasons, but one reason, arguably, is that Saddam Hussein tried to, uh, you know, whack his father. Uh, you know, and I don't blame him for that. I mean, if he had tried to whack my father and had an army, I would also invade Iraq. But luckily, in a committee decision-making context, that sort of thing wouldn't happen, right? Well, I just want to say this only works in the context of a one-party state, right? I mean, in a democracy, key, personal, key personnel changes at the top. Only one minute left? <laughs> oh, sorry. So there's no incentive for decades-long training. Less talent goes um, to the bureaucracy because the real power holders are chosen by the people. Let me just finish by saying, of course, Chinese meritocracy is, fraud, is flawed, just like democracy is flawed. The most obvious problem is corruption. Um, and, and that's explained, I think, more by a level of economic development than by the nature of government. And I can, have, go some number, I can have some numbers. And I totally agree that we need more freedom of media. We need anti-corruption agencies like in Hong Kong, more transparencies, more public audits of family members, and higher salaries for, for public servants. I totally agree with all that. But what we don't need is one person, one vote, and multi-party rule, uh, that we should make improvements on the basis of the China model and not on the basis of Western cell democracy. Thank you. Thanks for that.
for that, Daniel. And for our second speaker, we have Ronnie Tong, the former chairman of the Hong Kong Bar Association. He's a senior counsel, and he knows a bit about the bruising and competitive world of Hong Kong politics. Uh, he was first elected as a legislator in 2004. He's been re-elected twice, and he co-founded the Civic Party in 2006 with the aim of becoming Hong Kong's ruling party. Earlier this year, Tong told the pan-democratic camp that to run for office, one needs not only popularity, but pragmatism. Running for office, he said, is not like contesting a beauty pageant. Ronnie Tong is arguing against the motion, China picks better leaders than the West. Thank you, moderator. Uh, let me just jump right in. When I was first told of the motion, I scratched my head. I said, what motion is this? And after I've heard uh, my learned friends, the bell, I got even more confused. No doubt he's an academic. <laughs> now, let, let's, just take the, let's just take the motion and look at it uh, seriously um, on a down-to-earth level. China picks better leaders than the West. Well, forget about the West. China. What China? Are we talking about a nation? Or are we talking about the administration? Are we talking about the governed or the governor? Now, if you mean the nation, then I think this motion will get defeated, you know, even begin the word is said. Because China doesn't pick its leaders. Right? Now, if you talk about the administration, uh, then uh, we get a bit of a problem here. Now, there is no, as far as we know, uh, an open election process in China. Everybody knows that. Uh, my friend admitted that their leaders are selected, not elected. Now, what you're talking about, therefore, is that a few will pick the leader for many. It's almost like going back to the Dark Ages and, and saying feudalism is better than modern-day society. And my learned friend is, uh, I think, quick enough to admit that it only works in a one-party nation, and, and we're the Communist Party, both of uh, I don't know how many million members they are. But you're still talking about, what, even 10 million people deciding for 1.3 billion? Come on, Mr. Bell. I mean, you know... We don't even need to consider the rest of the motion. Um, there's a second problem, not with Mr. Bell, but with the motion. <laughs> Who is to be picked? Well, under the communist system, the pool of candidates available is woefully small. Uh, you get very limited people to be picked, not 1.3 billion, I can assure you. And, well, I don't want to, to openly criticize mainland China too much because I'm, I'm in Hong Kong, I'm in politics, right? <laughs> so let me just take an example. Let's look at Hong Kong, for example, all right? And, we are, and, and here, we have a non-representative system, uh, uh, albeit uh, on a, a small scale. Hong Kong doesn't get to pick its leader. 1,200 people do that. And look at the result. <laughs> Do I need to say anything more? <laughs> well, uh, if the pool of candidates is woefully small, uh, the result is that you've got very limited choice. And I think that is, is self-proof enough. Now, uh, another problem uh, is that what is the picking process? Does anybody know... Uh, I don't know, Mr. Bell didn't really tell us uh, you know, a great deal more than what I read in the newspaper. But where everything is done behind closed doors, and, and even now I read newspaper every day, I, I read tens of, uh, more than 10 newspapers every day, and I don't get the, the, the feeling that there is an election process going on in Beijing at the moment. Do you? Do you know what's going on? Now, the trouble with a closed door system is that you don't know what trade-offs is being taken place and how. I agree. In this election process, what's going to happen is not that the best man will win. 
is just that the person who gets uh, uh, who can do the, the the most compromises and who is able to please everybody, we get to win. And therefore, every time you get a, a middle-of-the-road person who is there to appease all different interests and everybody in the party, and he will then become the leader. And my learned friend said, well, you know, that's the uh, formula for change. Well, I'm sorry. Look at the hard facts. Look at the history. China has not changed. It has not changed since 1949. So, so how does it work in practice? If you say, well, you know, uh, China picks a better leader, uh, and therefore it's good for changes. Well, I look at Obama, he's not a very good politician, I'm sorry to say that, but I'm in Hong Kong, I can say that. <laughs> but at least he's brave enough to get elected and say, I will do the things which is most unpopular in America, but I will still do it. Now, whether he will succeed or not is a matter for him, and the voters can then decide whether he still won him or not, and they will decide next week. I think there's nothing wrong with that. At least you give somebody a chance to try. But under this closed-door selection system, where a few picked a leader, you don't get very much done. Now, there's a, a third point. Better leader. What do you mean by better leader? How do you define better what is the standard you measure up against? Well, if my friend says, well, better means better economic development, more stability in China, well, I would ask the question. I said, you know, is that enough? Is that how you measure up as to who is a better leader? I certainly would not. There are things in this world we call universal values. There are values in the community which are being held by everybody not just by a few. And so when you say China picks a better leader, you've got to tell me in what way and measure against what scale that you say the current or past Chinese leader are better than anybody else. Well, I'm sorry. You know, I, I just don't buy that. And I can't even begin to, to imagine that because I look at Obama, I look at Bush, I look at Margaret Thatcher, I look at Winston Churchill. I can tell I like something about each of these people, or I don't like some of these people. But at least I can measure up one against the other in terms of universal value, in, in terms of the things that I believe in, and things that you believe in. But I can't say the same for Chinese leader. So uh, at the end of the day, I just don't know what we're here arguing about. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing organizers, I mean, unless they might not <laughs> invite me back again next time. But frankly, this motion, uh, to me, doesn't make much sense. And, and uh, maybe that's the reason why my learned friend doesn't make much sense in his speech. But I'm being unkind to him, and I don't really mean to say that. But, I mean, if you look at it, the motion, really in a, in a down-to-earth, in a hard way, then you can tell that this motion simply cannot stand. Because the very first basis is that China gets a chance to pick a leader who can dare compare on the world stage with other leaders in the world, not just the West. But I'm sorry. We can't even begin to get there. I'm, I hope that in 10 years, maybe 20 years' time, I can come back and I can seriously argue that China can pick a better leader than the West. But until then, this motion must fail. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. And for our third speaker, we have Daniel Fung, who probably needs no introduction to this home audience. He's the first Chinese to serve as Hong Kong's Solicitor General, a job he did for four years, first under the colonial government, then after the return to Chinese sovereignty. He's now a Hong Kong delegate to the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, and he's compared China's Communist Party to the Tory Party, the Conservatives in Victorian England, saying an ambitious young person who wanted to shinny up the greasy pole would join the party. He's arguing for the motion China picks better leaders than the West. Thank you so much, uh, Louisa. Um, 
those of you of a certain age um, in the audience will remember that in 1972, uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus had a skit. The skit was called um, Remembrance of Things Past Summarize It in One Minute Flat. Um, and in, in that program, by the time the uh, reciter got to dip the madeleine in the cup of tea, John Cleese had clanged the bell um, and said, time's up, next contestant, please. So um, th- this, having been given 10 minutes to speak to this particular motion, I, I would start off with three um, preambulatory remarks. First, to understand um, the debate, use your slow brain. In other words, um, Daniel Kahneman, in telling us uh, that thinking fast and slow distinguishes between system one, which is fast, instinctive, emotional, system two being slow, deliberative, logical, and rational, this debate is really a system two debate. <coughs> now, um, before I argue why China picks better leaders than the West, uh, we should understand that there is actually no issue that universal adult suffrage is the ultimate goal. Uh, for China, no leadership uh, has uh, disputed that. The only issue is one of pace. Given that China is a developing country with a per capita GDP of just over 5500 US dollars compared to a US per capita GDP of over <coughs> 48000 given that China has one-sixth of the arable land uh, of the US, feeding a population four and a half times that of the United States, the system is right for now. China, of course, does not proselytize. This is not the prescription for the rest of the world. But right now, uh, that's what's best for China. And we also have to bear in mind that campaigning and governing are two entirely (coughs) different skill sets, the one often inimical to the other. (coughs) Now, let's start with China's strengths systemically. One, Chinese leaders have been tested in job capacities that are good for predicting performance, relevant to government leadership. The organization system for the party ensures that um, candidates have both local and national positions across bureaucratic sectors, uh, which allow for a broad base of administrative experience network building. And it's a system that favors stability, but also uh, focuses on effectiveness based on experience. Contrast that with the United States, where it is possible, indeed the case, that an individual who has never governed or even run a large corporation, could end up in his very first job of government running the most powerful country in the entire world. Is that a better system? Number two, uh, Chinese system eliminates short-termism. That is focused on in the United States, where candidates have to respond to an electorate that usually wants results now, today, not tomorrow, uh, hopefully also yesterday, Uh, it was done already, without regard for long-term consequences. Chinese leaders obviously don't have to constantly check uh, polling data. They can therefore focus on the longer term um, and deal with challenges that may require short-term sacrifice. Number three, Chinese system does not waste a significant amount of time and resources raising and spending money to collect votes or to demonize uh, other potential leaders or ideas. The money is spent is to unify the nation's support for the current or the upcoming leadership, um, and the system does work hard to pick able leaders, but it also works to deliver a foundation for the leadership. Number four, Chinese system actually incorporates feedback uh, from the public because the one thing that is for sure is that whoever you are, whether you're a mayor, provincial governor, um, leader of a county or township, you have to deliver to improve the lives of the people. Otherwise, you do not get to shimmy up the greasy pole, as Louisa was reminding me, because I was using Disraeli as an example when he joined the Tories uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, And the system is responsive to the public. I mean, if you look at today's SCMP report about um, the protesters who protested against the expansion of a petrochemical plant in Ningbo, the Ningbo city government actually vouched that it will not go ahead with the expansion. Now, contrast that with the United States. One of the biggest problems um, with the way the United States picks its leaders is the role of money. This year, Americans will spend almost $6 billion on national elections alone. This does not include local election costs. This number has increased dramatically in recent years. The last midterm election 
uh, uh, cost $4 billion. In other words, candidates, elected leaders, are hostage to money. The influence of money is so large on policy creation that it discredits the entire system. The process delegitimizes uh, all American leaders, and no one who seriously believes that the U.S. has domestic and global challenges to address can sustain a system that not only leads to such a wasteful outcome, but is going to cost increasingly more with the passage of time. The decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010, Citizens United against the Federal Election Commission, which legitimized super PACs in raising as much money as they want, led to a comment uh, by Dennis Campbell to say, is U.S. democracy up for sale? 200 millionaires or billionaires can um, swing the entire election. Now, secondly, the role of money is even more disturbing when you see how it reinforces another major failure of the system. This is the radicalization of candidates and, and the voting populace. And we see uh, money being used uh, to um, redistrict, in, in other words, gerrymander. Um, money is used to um, focus attention on sensationalism, personal muckraking, mudslinging, and, and so on. Now, um, we also see that the whole system looks increasingly like a strange Rube Goldberg echo chamber, where Republicans and Democrats only speak um, to themselves during election cycles. But this is part of the primary process, which never existed in the United States until the mid-1960s. Thirdly, we see that uh, candidates pander for votes because um, they, they know that they have to get uh, policies actually articulated in very short sound bites. Now, how, how do you then actually have a proper debate? I mean, how many people in this room understand the consequences of the various options for reforming Medicare in the United States? I mean, the percentage here that understands that issue may not be so different uh, from the percentage in reality in the United States. In, in other words, a particularly small percentage uh, understand the issues um, in, uh, in, a, in that particular debate. Fourthly, there is a serious structural problem because of the nonstop two-year election cycle. And this short-termism um, operates at the expense of longer-term policies which require a much more concentrated effort uh, and delayed gratification. So, for example, hard infrastructure in the United States, which is the um, uh, highways system, which was built by Eisenhower in the mid-50s, is crumbling, and no one uh, wants to put money there because the answer is if um, you don't have a policy delivery within the two-term cycle, um, th this is considered um, a waste of time. Um, fifthly, the idea that um, presidential debates that we've seen, the, the three presidential debates we've seen, actually enables um, the electorate to choose the better person uh, as their leader was given very short shrift by Gary Silverman in FT, also by the FT leader a couple of days back, uh, where he says presidential debates have never been actually the best forum for constructive thinking. And Brzezinski himself um, said that when it comes to a question of foreign policy, um, having presidential debates or presidential elections works in against United States interests. So demonizing China as a currency manipulator, which is what um, Mr. Romney said he will do on day one in office, is not a particularly helpful way to conduct foreign policy. Now, um, let, let's look at, of course, what makes for a good system. What makes for a good system is not just a selection process for the leader, but other aspects like free and independent media, rule of law, etc., which are uh, aspects of uh, civil society building that is very much needed in China, that is also very much needed in the West. Let me end with the famous Churchillian quote, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried. Now, that, that's something everybody knows. But much less well-known is Winston Churchill's observation that the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you, Daniel. And for our final speaker, we're honored to have Kenneth Liebethal. He's a leading authority on China. During the Clinton administration, he was special assistant to the president for national security affairs and senior director for Asia at the National Security Council. He's former director of the John L. Thornton Center at the Brookings Institution, and he first visited China in 1976. He's been quoted as saying that if it were accurately named, the Chinese Communist Party would be called the Chinese Bureaucratic Capitalist Party. He's arguing against the motion, China picks better leaders than the West. Thank you very much, Louise. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I will say, uh, if China had a vibrant democracy at the bottom and had a rigorous meritocracy at the top, my task would be much tougher today. And if money played no role in who gets to the top in China, my task would also be much tougher. Fortunately, my task is not nearly as hard as it might otherwise be. Let me come at this. Each of us has taken a somewhat different approach. Let me come at this in the following way. Uh, The motion is about whether China picks better leaders than the West. Question is, what does better mean? Uh, Dan began to answer that. Let me give you my own uh, definition. My definition of better is leaders who best prepare your country to, to thrive in the coming decades of the 21st century. And my short list of things that leaders have to do, of the system that they have to shape to thrive given the demands of the decades ahead of us, includes five elements. These aren't the only five you can name, but they are, to me, the most important. One, they have to develop a good system of innovation. Innovation, in turn, requires an educational system that produces people not only that have skills, but have inquiring minds and creativity. A financial system that is flexible, risk-taking, and where people in that system understand the phases of startup development legal protections of both property and intellectual property, and entrepreneurship. You have to have a system where Steve Jobs would not be crushed, (coughs) but rather can succeed. Secondly, you need a political system that's able to cope with the demands of a highly educated, internationally connected, and mobile society. That is a political system that permits the free flow of key ideas uh, and is responsive to the inputs of an educated population. Third, a system that provides good basic protections for the rights of its citizens. Uh, Why? Because only that kind of system is attractive uh, in terms of soft power. In other words, only with that kind of system in the modern world do you have the best and the brightest want to go there, live there, produce there, and contribute there. Fourth, you want a political system that provides, I'm sorry, a, a political system that has high levels of transparency in order to reduce the chances of governmental abuse and sustain the active support of the population. And finally, you want a system that is very good at growing the economy, because growing the economy is what produces opportunities for the next generation. Uh, Let me say all the major political systems uh, in the West and also in China have high-capacity individuals who make it to the top. You don't get to the top of these systems if you aren't a high-capacity person. The question is what you use that capacity to achieve. And frankly, by the criteria I just named, I think China's leaders are not faring as well as those in the United States or indeed in much of the West. First, China's innovation system does not lack for funds. There's huge effort being put into this. But it's highly constrained by rigid education, poor legal protections, including poor protections for intellectual property, and the funneling of funds to large state-owned enterprises in ways that I believe inhibit successful growth of entrepreneurial private companies into major companies themselves. Uh, Innovation is much more bottom-up than the model being pushed by the current leaders in China uh, highlights. Uh, It is not top-down, which is inherent in the current model there, and American leaders understand that. Second, China's one-party authoritarian system is problematic in managing the increasingly diverse, educated, rights-conscious, and well-informed mobile society uh, that China now has. For example, while Chinese civil society in the sense of public involvement and public activism is growing a great deal, 
there still aren't good institutionalized mechanisms for taking that public activism and channeling it into political participation other than by mass incidents. So this is a part of the system that really hasn't kept up with developments in the society itself. American leaders, of course, encourage civil society and political participation. Third, Chinese protection of individual rights from abuse by officials is, is frankly, poor. Uh, the U.S. is an extraordinarily diverse society, racially, religiously, in every way you can imagine, uh, and yet it excels in protecting civil liberties. Also in China, there is no legal system that's independent of political controls. This reflects the conscious choices of China's leaders. In America, we've long had an independent judicial system. Transparency in China is extremely poor. Uh, that is not only true for what leaders are currently doing and for how the new leaders, in this case, within the next few weeks, are being selected, but also even about major dimensions of the history of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, if you're on the mainland and want to really know what happened during the Great Leap Forward, uh, you have to leave the mainland to find out. If you want to know what really happened in 1989, you have to leave the mainland to find out. These are not small incidents in the history of a party. Uh, when you conceal the past and conceal the present, it rarely means that you're going to get good outcomes in the future. The area where China has done best, obviously, is in the fifth criterion, which is to say the growth of the Chinese economy. And that clearly has afforded enormous opportunities for the next generation to move up. China obviously warrants congratulations, and China's leaders uh, over the past few decades uh, have done a great job in doing that. But now growth is slowing, and the country needs to change its development model. To date, the leaders have specified what the new development model should look like in the 12-5 year plan, but have frankly not shown the political wherewithal to take that plan and drive its consequences through the system, making decisions that will undercut the interests of major current players in the system in order to create the kind of long-term growth, sustainable growth, and balanced growth that the country needs. We'll have to see whether the new leadership coming in can do better, but note that this is going to require substantial political as well as economic reform to be successful. So arguably, in each of the above areas, China on balance recently has moved in the wrong direction. Uh, that's not a good basis for arguing that its current leaders are better than those in the West. The U.S., obviously, I've compared this to the U.S. rather than the West as a whole, as the motion indicates, because frankly, the West as a whole is too diverse to make meaningful uh, generalizations. So forgive my being ethnocentric uh, by using the U.S. as the counterpart. The U.S. obviously has enormous advantages because of its already being a highly developed economy and a mature democratic political system with a very vibrant civil society and a strong tradition of rule of law. I note, though, that all of those characteristics reflect the conscious decisions of generations of American leaders. In recent years, the U.S. has done very badly, as we know, in terms of making the tough decisions necessary to deal with our fiscal deficit at a national level. And this could become hugely damaging over the course of another decade if it's not addressed within the coming year or two in terms of a national political compact on how to increase revenues and decrease expenditures as we move into the future. So I would agree there have been some recent serious failures of U.S. national <coughs> leadership on this particular issue. But in every other area, the U.S. is not only very strong, but arguably has a record that continues to improve, or at least is not, moving in the wrong direction. And U.S. local government, out of the national spotlight that you follow abroad, is in fact performing as well as it ever has in American history. In short, at present there is no serious case to make, to my mind, that China picks better leaders than does the United States. As to the West as a whole, that's a very broad set of places, very hard to generalize, but in general, at least on non-economic issues, the West as a whole is doing very well. So I would conclude uh, with the obvious uh, uh, wrapping up that China does not produce, does not pick better leaders than the West. This is a motion that clearly does not stand up to the, as Daniel said, to the slow 
deliberative and rational argument that should be brought to bear. Thank you very much. But thank you to all our speakers and the results of the initial vote are in. You all voted as you came in the room. Uh, the motion, I'll remind you, is China picks better leaders than the West. The initial results, uh, just 14% voted for the motion, 45% voted against the motion, but the interesting thing was 41% said they didn't know, so there were a lot of floating voters out there still to fight for. <laughs> and now we are going to open the questions up to the floor. I'll take questions in groups of three. Please, I'd like to remind you, please don't make long political diatribes with, like, questions, <laughs> not statements. And please feel free to direct them to a specific member of the panel or the whole panel, and please do identify yourself. So, questions? Hi, uh, my name is Simon. Uh, just a question for the four panel uh, Professor Bell, you said the meritocracy system is based on Asian practices. So why had the Chinese people have to resort to a violent means of overthrowing government for the past 5,000 years in history? And to uh, Mr. Fong, uh, if any one of us in this room wants to be a member of the national or the uh, Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, how do we do it? Thank you. Okay, any final questions for this side? I, I think the answer to the last question is very simple. There, there is actually a nomination process, and you need a proposer, and you need two seconders, uh, and it goes before a committee, very similar to how you join the jockey club, for example, or the hawker club. Uh, and, and that, that is a process is, which, is, which is known. So there is a, there is a process. Uh, just about how to uh, the, the history of violent uh, overthrow of government in, in, in China. I mean, actually, the Chinese imperial system has been relatively stable compared to uh, alternatives. Um, of course, there have been some violent overthrows, and but that system now, because now there's a system to avoid it. Precisely, you know, every ten years there's a new set of leaders with term limits that come in place. That that prevents this sort of bad bad uh, outcome uh, from happening. Right. Any final questions? It's your last chance. Over there. Good evening. I'd just like to ask those uh, proposing the motion you know, from where China's leaders derive their legitimacy. I? Yeah. I, I, I think they, they have to derive their legitimacy not from the vote because they don't get voted in, but they derive their legitimacy from results. And it's really in the implementation of policy and whether they deliver public goods to the people that they derive the legitimacy. We've, we've seen that um, uh, all the time, and we, we see how um, uh, the, uh, as it were, approval ratings uh, of individuals uh, get vetted, and we, we know from the Chinese blogosphere, which is the, the wildest blogosphere in the entire world, far wilder than anything in the United States, purely because of... Uh, demographic differences. They're, 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 the, the blogosphere is so much bigger and therefore more diverse. Uh, there are comments uh, which are in fact noted and, and therefore th there is that, that feedback. And also uh, uh, to support this point but add another point, um, according to political surveys there's big differences in terms of how people in China and how people in the U.S., for example, think of their leaders. There's very strong support for meritocracy. Uh, it goes way back in Chinese political culture, and it's still there now. You can measure it in political surveys. And if the leaders are viewed as competent and, and morally upright, then that's an important source of legitimacy. So now we're going to move on to the third section of the evening where each of the debaters will sum up. They have three minutes to sum up their positions. They'll do it in reverse order. So Kenneth Liebethal will, will go first. Uh, thank, you, uh, thank you, Louisa. You've raised a lot of good questions in the audience. Let me make just a couple of remarks in summary. One, uh, and I'm being fairly personal here, let, let me say I really hope that China produces outstanding leaders and is highly successful. I think that is critically important for the people of China. I think it's good for Asia, and it's certainly good for the United States. So my criticisms that I've raised here are criticisms out of, frankly, genuine concern. 
uh, is not that I wish China bad, is that I fear that the system is actually not, not performing as well as it needs to perform, given the challenges that it currently confronts. Those are partly the challenges of its past success, where you have a more educated, more mobile, better informed, and more dynamic population uh, to govern. Uh, secondly, coming back to the terms of this debate, uh, Chinese culture and American culture make very different assumptions about leaders. American, the American political system is, is premised on the notion that you cannot assume that you'll get good leaders. And that people, when they get a lot of power and are exposed to a lot of money, uh, sometimes lose their way. And therefore, you have to constrain them. You constrain them by law that they are subject to as well as the citizens being subject to them. You constrain them by elections that give you an institutionalized means of getting rid of them. You constrain them by rules requiring transparency so you know what it is they're actually doing. Uh, China assumes historically, as Dan has repeatedly said, that the way to get good governance is to get the right people governing and then maximize their power because if they're virtuous people, they'll shape a good society. The problem is I don't think history provides a great deal of support for the notion that that will work. Um, more importantly, in the modern world, I think it's less likely to work. It may work in a more hermetically sealed uh, system, but not in one of a global web and global mobility and so on and so forth. So I really worry about that, and frankly, I think many in China worry about that. And that relates to the third and final point I'll raise, which is the question of legitimacy. Now, it's really quite notable. You look at any mature democracy, and no one worries about the stability of the system. They worry about individual leaders, they worry about particular policies, they worry about particular problems, but the system is stable. So Fukushima in Japan, the Japanese government didn't react in terms of, are the people going to rise up and overthrow the Japanese political system? In China, they worry about the stability of the system every single day. Every single day, you read about it in the press. If Hu Jintao says one thing in every speech, it's the need for stability. I agree with him. Stability is at risk. Uh, it's a difference in system, and I think the, a democratic system provides a firmer grounding for the kind of stability, which is a legitimacy, that a modern society needs. Thank you. So in reverse order, Daniel Fung, you're up next. I think the concern over stability, uh, which Ken just mentioned, is not unique to China at all. In fact, if, if you look at uh, Europe today, uh, that is of major concern, particularly in the uh, Mediterranean so-called soft underbelly of Europe, in Greece, in Italy, in Spain, uh, in Portugal, spreading also to France. Now, the issue there is whether... Uh, politically uh, and democratically elected leaders can take um, the right medicine and bite the bullet to resolve the system, which is of very great concern to the electorate. And the answer is um, not optimistic. Uh, whether you speak to people in Berlin or whether you speak to people in Brussels or you go to Rome or you go to Athens, Lisbon and Madrid. Now, uh, what is this debate all about? It is not whether uh, the Chinese system is superior to the Western system, and uh, it is not about whether rule of law is a good thing, whether uh, free and independent media is a good thing, whether civil society is a good thing. That's assumed, and I think there's general consensus that all these are good things. The, the, the only question is whether the system of selection of Chinese leaders uh, ends up with a, a better result, um, and I would say yes for China. This is not a prescription of the world, but this is what China needs at this time. It needs long-term planning. Um, and I end with just one observation. Less than uh, three weeks ago, um, a famous economist, Eric Hobsbawm, died. Um, he's a Marxist. Um, he, there was an obituary written about him by Christopher Caldwell, a right-wing uh, commentator writing in the Weekly Standard. And he says that... Um, as far as Eric Hobsbawm is concerned, he, he is a man of integrity because he said, even if you consider democracy 
as an alternative to other systems. You can only defend democracy with a sigh. And uh, that sums up the, the greatness of that observation, the greatness of Eric Hobsbawm. And you don't have to be a Marxist to believe in that particular observation. Thank you. Thank you. And now to our third debater, Ronnie Tong. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, sitting here, I, I get this very strange feeling that those on my right are arguing on a different motion than we are. They are arguing why democracy is not working today. We are arguing China doesn't pick better leaders. Well, the fact, even if it's true that democracy is not working today, doesn't carry the motion. They still have to show that China picks better leaders. Let me just share some statistics with you. Now, um, uh, China ranks 75 according to the Corruption Perception Index 2011. So if you say better leaders means they're better in cultivating corruption, well, then I think you should uh, you know, vote for the motion. Worldwide Press Freedom Index by Reporters Without Border ranked China 174 out of 179. So if you're in China, you have no idea what's going on, and you're only being fed with good news, but none of the bad news, they probably won't, what, they, they, most of them don't even know who Liao Xiaoboi is. How do, you, how do you rate your leader? How, how do you compare? There's no way you can begin to compare. And I haven't even touched on human rights. I mean, nobody has touched upon human rights. Not directly. So, um, this is a, a motion which uh, plainly cannot stand. And I, I hope that, that uh, you would agree with me, and I hope that you all have a very enjoyable evening. Thank you. <laughs> and our final su sum, uh, debater, uh, Daniel Bell. Thank you. Just um, one point maybe about uh, Ken's speech, which in a way was very moving because he really seems to love the U.S. It works very well except for economic growth. Now, I'm not so confident because on issues like per capita carbon emissions. I mean, if China and India were to follow the American way of life, I mean, our natural world would be pretty doomed, you know? So I do hope we can find a better model. It's too late to change the U.S. model. It's stable, but another way of putting it is that it's frozen in time. The Constitution, you just can't change it. Um, so let's not try to impose that model. Let's, hope, let's allow for different models of political rule and hope that China could come up with a better one. And I think it's moving towards that direction. Um, Yes, China's corrupt, you know, uh, but it's ahead on that anti-corruption uh, index, ahead of Peru, Greece, Argentina, India, uh, uh, Indonesia, many of the democracies. So it's unclear that it's, I think it's more related to the level of economic development. Finally, let me just make one point. That one uh, criticism of those defend, who defend meritocracy is that they're motivated by a form of self-love, you know. Plato, he wants philosophers to be rulers. You know, economists want to test for economic confidence. Confucians want rulers to be tested for Confucian classics. Now, and I'm arguing for more exams. Let me just say, I'm not good at exams. Um, I've, I've, and so it's, I'm definitely not motivated by self-love. And I honestly hope to be ruled by somebody better. There are many out there, you know, here. I mean, just I, there's one here, my, my own wife. She's better at exams. She's better at administration. <laughs> she's more compassionate. You know, I, I hope that people like her are rulers, not me. <laughs> so I think the, uh, the uh, votes are still being counted, uh, or maybe we actually have them coming right now. Thank you. So the motion was, China picks better leaders than the West. When you came into the room... 14% of people voted for the motion, 45% of people voted against the motion, and 41% were undecided. After hearing our four debaters speak, 28% uh, voted for the motion, 65% voted against the motion, and only 7% were undecided. So this time, uh, those speaking against the motion uh, have won this evening's debate, but thank you all for a very thought-provoking debate and for some great questions. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.